Good morning, church. No page number, but go to the end of the Old Testament, and it's the last chapter in Zephaniah that we're going to read today. I'm Carol Baker. Forgot that bit. <laughs> Welcome here. I had it all set up, and then I pushed the start button. Right. <laughs> Zephaniah 3. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have destroyed many nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will, will remove from you your arrogant... It's behind you. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, 
Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, uh, church. Uh, my name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, that's my daughter, my youngest. She's, you know, keen to obviously get up here as well. Um, yeah. How about I, how about I pray? Uh, I'm a little bit, you know, frazzled. Uh, so let's pray for God's help as we look at this part of the, His Word now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Word, your life-giving life-sustaining word. I pray now as we open it, may you be at work in our hearts and lives so that we go out of here praising you and changed as we bask in what you have done for us in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, as a kid growing up, my dad uh, worked at a, a conference centre, managed like five conference centres, uh, and so uh, I would often travel with him to meetings and things like that, and I, I loved going with him because uh, these conference centres were set in the native Australian bush, and so I'd, you know, go out and build shelters, I'd play in waterfalls, uh, it, it was beautiful, it was glorious, uh, but one memory stands out to me the most uh, of these conference centres, and it was when a bushfire came through and devastated one of them. I remember the night my dad got the call, uh, he, you know, hopped in the car and for the next two days, he was there on the front line with the firefighters, you know, protecting the conference centre, hoping that it wouldn't come through and destroy everything. Uh, thankfully, no lives were lost, uh, you know, uh, and the, the conference centre was safe. But actually, the surrounding bushland, was there was no tree that wasn't burnt. You know, as you looked around, there was no signs of life anywhere, it was just smoke and ash, for, you know, for all, as far as I could see. I remember with my dad driving out a few months later and I was in shock at the sight. But actually there was something that stood out to me more than the devastation of the bushland. It was the, the sight of this green shoot sticking up out of the ashes. Uh, the fire had swept through and destroyed everything. But this green shoot was a sign of new life. It was a sign of, that hope actually remained. It was a sign that a new day was dawning. And much like this bushfire, Zephaniah, the, so far has been a warning, hasn't it, of God's wrath, that it is coming, a warning to, to all people that he, the fire of his wrath is going to come through and consume. In chapter 1, verse 18, Zephaniah captured it like this. He said, in the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. The judgment is going to come. It will fall on all who have not sought him. All who've rejected him as their loving and creator God. 
Last week you saw in chapter 2 how, how God's judgment will not just fall on his people, but actually on the nations. Do you remember what Assyria said? How they arrogantly lived thinking they were God? They said in, in 2.15, they said, I am and there is none besides me. The message of, of judgment has, has been overwhelming uh, for the last two weeks, hasn't it? Judgment is coming. But in, in chapter 3, Zephaniah wants us to know, God wants us to know that hope remains. God wants us to look and see that there's a sign of life, that this green shoot is sticking up out of the ashes, that a new day is on the horizon. And so Zephaniah gives us these two pictures in this chapter. The first picture is one of judgment, where the rebellious will face God's wrath. And the second is this glorious, beautiful picture of restoration and joy, where God is going to purify and make for himself a people. So let's, let's dig into that first picture of judgment. Have a read with me there of verses 1 and 2. It says, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. These uh, opening verses of, of chapter 3, I reckon, read kind of like a, a rap sheet or a criminal charge sheet against the people. Woe, Zephaniah says, you are rebellious, you uh, don't accept correction, you are disobedient. These people, they're they're a self-sufficient people. And and these opening verses, they're not describing the nations, they're actually describing God's people. The people who who should have sought him, the people who, who were given his word, the people who should have listened and obeyed and followed his ways. But rather, God's people, they trusted it in themselves. They live lives of independence from God. And, and this, this sin, it's the same sin of Adam and Eve from the very beginning. They think they know better than God. And it's actually the same sin we all commit each day. We all want to rule our own lives and not hand them over to God. We'd rather trust in ourselves than the God who made us, the God who made the universe, the God who loves us. We all live lives in the words of Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. You know, we don't want anyone telling us what to do, do we? Our world says, be true to yourself. Don't let anyone change who you are. And that attitude of rebellion stands in stark contrast to God. Have a look at at verse 5 with me. It says, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. Even though God's people have have withdrawn and distanced themselves from him, God has not distanced himself from them. God is there. He's in their midst. God's people can't say, say they didn't know any better. God is with them, and he's been with them generation after generation. They've been rebelling against him, but God has been a faithful, loving, steadfast provider and protector of them. He's never failed them. He's never done them any wrong. But did you see what it said there at the end of verse 5? Yet they know no shame. God is in their midst. He sees it all, yet they know no shame. For my uh, eldest daughter, not the one who ran down here, uh, she... Uh, often at home, if I catch her doing the wrong thing, she'll run off to her bedroom and uh, she'll pull the cover up over her head and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll follow in after her. I'll peel the cover off and uh, the first thing that often comes out of her mouth is, 
Daddy, I feel embarrassed. For my daughter, in, in those moments, when I catch her doing the wrong thing, the, the feeling that she you know, overwhelmingly feels is one of shame. She's embarrassed. She's embarrassed that I saw her do what she did. Yet God's people here in Zephaniah's day, they are relentless in their rebellion from God. They are unashamed of their actions. They've lived lives in defiance of God and, and they're proud of it. They didn't even learn any lessons about God of who he is, his power and his might from history. God had had rooted and destroyed nations. Last week we we read about this, how he was going to judge the nations. He left cities deserted. And and, and so he says in verse 7 to to his people, read it there with me. He says, of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept my correction. God says, look at what I've done to the nations. You've seen it with your very eyes, how I've protected you and brought you through. I've, I've made mighty nations to nothing. You know, God longs for his people to turn back to him, to turn back to his love and correction. Like a father of a, of a disobedient child who's running away, God just longs for them to turn back to him, to his loving embrace. Yet God's people, they were eager to still act corruptly. It's as if God's people thought, you know, they could escape his justice. It's as if they thought we can live however we want. We can treat God however we want and there's going to be no consequences. But God declares to them, he says in verse 8, three words. He says, wait for me. Now, I reckon the context of those words, wait for me, can really change their meaning. Imagine a loved one going off to war, you know, saying to their, their partner, wait for me. Or imagine, you know, you're, you're running late and so you message a friend who's meeting up for you just saying, just wait for me. Those, those words, wait for me, can actually be chilling words too. I remember uh, in my high school science class, one such chilling moment. I remember our, our teacher, Mr. Rush, he was this kind of tall, white, pale, kind of emotionless man uh, and uh, he, he left our classroom one day, and everyone kind of, you, you kind of know what happens when a teacher leaves the high school classroom, it, it erupts into chaos. You know, there's things being thrown across the classroom, you know, kids are playing with Bunsen burners, it's like, it's just chaos. Uh, and so, you know, I thought, I'm going to, you know, imitate Mr. Rush. So I put on a lab coat, I walked up the front of the classroom, picked up a pen, and I'm, you know, pretending to be him, uh, and then all of a sudden I hear this hush come over the classroom. You know, you know what's coming, right? I, I turn around, and who's there but Mr. Rush? And, you know, in his deep, just monotone voice, he just says to me, Paul, wait for me at my office. You know, I, I can still, you know, my head's are standing out the back of my neck. I still remember that moment, waiting at his office door, waiting for this sense of impending doom. You know, God, God here is saying to his people, wait for me. Judgment is coming. The time for my wrath to be poured out is coming. God's patience is up. That's the, the first picture we get here in, in Zephaniah 3. It's one of judgment for those who've lived in rebellion against God. And it's a picture that Zephaniah has, has painted for us quite vividly in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so I think it begs the question, have you heard the warning 
Zephaniah is giving us. That a day of judgment is coming. That a day of fire and wrath where all who've lived lives self-sufficiently and independent from God will face his justice. You know, astonishingly, incredibly though, that this just punishment for the rebellious, it's not the end of the story. Incredibly, the book of Zephaniah doesn't stop at verse 8. Hope remains. New life will sprout out of the ashes. The second picture we get here in Zephaniah chapter 3 is one of restoration and joy, where God, out of his love, will purify and save for himself a people to praise him. Have a look there with me at verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. The fire of God's judgment is coming and it's going to consume, but it's also going to purify. It's going to purify a people to praise and serve God forever. Up to this point, God has has been calling on his people time and time again to change, to repent, to turn back to him, to listen and obey him. But time and time again, they've rebelled. They haven't wanted to obey. They haven't wanted to listen. They actually haven't been able to change. So God here says, I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to take matters into my own hands here. I'm going to purify you. Through the fire of God's judgment, he's going to purify a people who will be able to call on him, who will be able to praise him and serve him. God is, is pictured here like a, a master you know, goldsmith who, who will refine and remove any imperfections. All that's impure will be gone. God's people will finally be able to call on him and serve him. Through judgment, God is going to remove their sin and cleanse their lips. God will make them a new people, able to live lives serving and honoring him. Lives that, you know, they were meant to live. And, you know, on this glorious day, the shame they feel for all the wrongs they've done, it'll be wiped clean. Read with me verse 11 and 12. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me, because I'll remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I'll leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. God's going to remove the shame from all the things they've done that are wrong. It's like he's going to get out the eternal eraser and wipe the slate clean. And on this day of wiping clean and and removing sin, did you see who will not be there? It's those who've, who've continued in rebellion against God. But who will remain? Those who have humbled themselves, those who have trusted in the name of the Lord. And Zephaniah declares this day of restoration and joy, this glorious day, a day to rejoice in. Have a look there with me at verse 14 and 15. He says, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment, He has turned back your enemy. It's quite a, you know, an overwhelming picture of praise. And I wonder, I wonder for you, what is it that makes you shout aloud? What is it that makes you, you know, sing praise with all your heart? Well, when I think of this kind of behavior, I, I actually think of my wife, Mel. 
Uh, some of you might be a little bit surprised by that. You might think she's, you know, real quiet, reserved kind of lady. But I remember this, this moment, not long after we had, you know, started dating and we were at a football match. And uh, her team, the Eels, were playing my team, the Knights. And her team was smashing my team. And every moment, uh, every time her team scored a try, she would jump up, put her fingers in her mouth and whistle. You know, she's still really, you go and ask her after church, you know, she's incredible at it. But I rem- my ears were ringing for days after that. But that wasn't, that, that wasn't all. She would just throw her hands in the air and just be like, yeah. It was, it was quite an overwhelming picture, you know. I was like, who is this lady? Um, Mel's behavior in that moment, it was like all consuming. She held nothing back in her praise for her team. And Zephaniah here is saying to God's people, you've got something worth celebrating. You've got something worth praising God with everything. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, how can that be? How can, you know, you're saying judgment, the judgment of God lead to praising God? Isn't judgment, you know, meant to be a bad thing? I know even for myself, sometimes I don't even want to talk about the judgment of God. But here we're being told that judgment will lead to celebration and praise of him. I think a valid question is, how can that be? Well, it's because because of what the judgment achieves. The judgment of God leads to praise because it purifies and removes from the people their sin and shame. They'll be a people who they're finally meant to be. A people free from sin. A people be. A people free from sin. A people able to obey God fully. And who's going to do this work? It's God. God is going to make them the people they're meant to be. So they won't be able to disobey him anymore. So he is worthy of praise. And on this this day of singing and celebration, it's not just God's people who'll be praising Do you see who else is singing in this chapter? It's God himself. Have a look there at verse 17 with me. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God here is is pictured as the one who will sing and delight over the people he saved. I feel like he's pictured like a father holding his child in his arms, singing a a song of love over them. God's people will be the apple of his eye, the the thing that he loves and delights in more than anything else. It's a beautiful picture. God's people will no longer be the, the objects of his wrath, but the objects of his affections. God will be with his people. He will save them and take great delight in them. This glorious picture of restoration and joy doesn't just finish with the people singing and God singing. In the final verses of this chapter, God declares some marvelous promises for the people's future. And these verses are full of the phrase, I will. Have a look there with me. It's God declaring what he will do for his people. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I'll give them praise and honor in every land where they've suffered shame. I will gather you and I'll bring you home. These final verses remind me of, you know, promises made at a wedding. 
promises made to, to love and to cherish, to, to have and to hold, to, to honor and to serve. And they're all, you know, declared, sealed with the declaration of I will. God here is the one making these promises, a covenant to his people, declaring how he will bless and protect them. God is going to rescue and honor and restore his people. And he'll do this because of who he is. Not because of anything that they've done, but because he is a God of love and mercy. And this, you know, glorious picture of these promises for the people's future is, you know, uh, the finish of our picture in chapter 3. It's a, a beautiful and glorious picture of restoration and joy. It's a picture of God purifying and saving for himself a people, a people who praise him. It's a picture of hope for the future. These two pictures of, of judgment and restoration in Zephaniah 3 should have been a warning and a comfort for the people in Zephaniah's day. They are a warning that, that judgment was coming, that God is enraged by their sin. But they are a comfort that, that God would not forsake his people. He would restore and purify for himself a people. And for, for God's people in Zephaniah's day, the, the judgment did fall. In, in 597 BC, the superpower Babylon came through and annihilated God's people. Many people were killed and many were carried off into exile. But God's word hadn't failed. Many years later, God brought back his faithful people out from exile. He brought back a remnant. But that day when they came back to the land, it, it pales into comparison to the picture, this glorious picture we have here in Zephaniah 3. It wasn't a day of, of rejoicing. It was a day of sadness and disappointment as the hope that they had anticipated didn't seem to come to pass. But the, the picture we have here in Zephaniah 3 ultimately was pointing forward to a far greater day of judgment and a far greater restoration. It was pointing forward to the day when Jesus would come into the world. When Jesus was born, he was given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And his very name, Jesus, means God saves. Have a look there again with me at Zephaniah 3.17. What does it say? It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Zephaniah 3 was pointing for today when Jesus would come, when he would face God's judgment and through it, purify a people to praise God forever. It's on the cross where the judgment of God and the purifying work of God take place. It's on the, the cross where God's judgment was poured out onto Jesus. And through that judgment, he purified a people for himself. Have a look at what Titus 2.14 says. It'll come up on the screen. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you see what these verses, this verse is saying? By Jesus giving his life for us, by him facing the judgment we deserve, he has purified us from our sin, our rebellion, our shame. And do you see the, the language there in that verse? He's, he's purified us from all our wickedness. By his death, Jesus has purified us to be his very own people. 
Jesus did what we couldn't do. He did what the people in Zephaniah's day couldn't do. You know, left to our own devices, we would have kept running away from God. But Jesus came to us, died for us to purify us so we can now live lives of praise and honour to God. Our lips can, can now cry out to God as our heavenly dad. Our lips can cry out in praise for all eternity for what he has done for us in Jesus. So I think the question is, how do you respond to Jesus? Well, maybe you're here today and and you don't yet trust in Jesus. Well, I think these words of of Zephaniah, the words of judgment are, are frightening words. Because each day you're still walking around under the shadow of God's wrath. There is the final day of judgment that will come where God's judgment will fall on all who have continued to live in rejection of him. And so these words in in Zephaniah are inviting you to, to respond humbly, to humble yourself before God and say sorry for, for living life running away from him. But thank you, Jesus, that you by your death you have purified me, that you have cleansed me of my sin and my rejection of you, that I no longer stand before God deserving of judgment, but as his precious child, the one he sings and delights over. Let me encourage you to respond humbly to God if that is you. But if you're someone here today who who already trusts in Jesus, Zephaniah has shown us the only appropriate response is one of praise. We should shout it from the rooftops. We should, you know, hold nothing back in our praise of Jesus because he is with us and he is mighty to save us. Our guilt, our shame has been washed away. We are completely cleansed of our sin and guilt and and God delights over us with sin. I I think maybe for some of us, you know, we we think of that idea of of God singing and delighting over us and maybe we're like, it sounds a little bit strange or maybe even a bit unbelievable. And and I think maybe for some of us, we still carry around, you know, this daily sense of our guilt and our shame before God. Well, if that is you, you need to remember that, that God doesn't look at you with a frown on his face thinking, man, they've, they've stuffed it again. You know, God doesn't look at you and think, man, why did I let them into my family? No, God looks at you and delights in you. He says, my son gave his life to purify you, to save you. We need to look back at the cross and remember in the words of Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. You know, God doesn't look at you and see your sin and your mistakes. No, he looks at you and sees you as a precious child, a child who could do no wrong because you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. See, our worth is not in in what we do or not in, in what we don't do. We are precious to God because Jesus' blood has washed us clean. Now, I reckon that is something to praise God for. He doesn't look at us as we deserve, but he looks at us as clean, precious children he delights over. So would you join me in praising God now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power.
For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Father, we come before you humbly, wanting to acknowledge how we often live life for ourselves and not for you. For that we are sorry, God. But Father, we want to come before you, wanting to give you all the praise, because by Jesus' wounds we have been healed. By his death, our shame, our guilt has been washed away. Father, help us daily remember that we no longer stand before you under judgment, but we stand before you as your precious children, whom you delight and rejoice in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.